All right. Well, good evening, everybody. Um, glad to see you here. This is our our fifth experimental Sunday evening service. Very uh, low key, um, relaxed, hopefully. Um, but uh, glad to see you all here, and we're happy tonight because we get to have Harry Gimple uh, preach his first sermon on Second John, and he'll be back next week to finish that up. I'm looking forward to it. Our scripture reading for tonight is from Second John. It's going to be verses 1 to 13, and I will read the entirety of that letter, and I'll invite Harry to come up. Second John, starting in verse 1. The elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also those who have known the truth, because of the truth which abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace with, be with you from God the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, in truth and love. I rejoiced greatly that I have found some of your children walking in truth as we received commandment from the Father. And now I plead with you, lady, not as though I wrote a new commandment to you, but that which we have heard or had from the beginning, that we love one another. This is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, that as you have heard, from the beginning, you should walk in it. For many deceivers have gone out into the world who do not confess Jesus Christ is coming in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. Look to yourselves that we do not lose those things which we worked for, but that we may receive the full reward. Whoever transgresses and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ does not have God. He who abides in the doctrine of Christ has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this doctrine, do not receive him into your house nor greet him, for he who greets him shares in his evil deeds. Having many things to write to you, I did not wish to do so with paper and ink, but I hope to come to you and speak face to face that our joy may be full. The children of your elect sister greet you. Amen. Amen. That's the word of the Lord. You may be seated. And uh, Harry, would you come forward? All right, let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this opportunity to preach behind the pulpit tonight. That's my first time preaching. I'm scared. But I pray that you'll encourage me and embolden me to speak your truth faithfully so that your word might be glorified and you might be magnified above all else. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, first off, thank you all so much for coming out here tonight and spending your Sunday night taking a chance on me. Uh, one number of you, our regular tenders at OCC, might be wondering who this Harry Gimple kid is that has appeared in our bulletin and in our church announcements. And, well, I'll tell you, I'm the child of Rick Gimple, who's a member here at OCC, or I'm the son of Rick Gimple. And I come in and out throughout the year to Sunday morning services, but that's because most of the time I'm down in Oklahoma studying philosophy at Oklahoma State University. 
I'll be a junior this fall down at school, but for this summer I was offered the opportunity to take a pastoral internship under Seth and Grant. And as a grand finale, if you will, I was uh, tasked with giving two sermons on the letter of 2 John. So 2 John, a little background on the text. It's known in the category of Catholic epistles, or if you want to sound more Baptist, we can call it a general epistle. And, (laughs) And all that means is, it's one of the letters written later in the, in the life of the Bible. It's once the early church is a little more salt, has a little more foundation. And so this letter is written by John, as you can guess, John the Apostle, so one of the twelve disciples that John. And it's written, as I believe, to a particular church when it says, the elder to the elect lady and her children. We know that, that the church is personified as the bride of Christ. And I would say this, this letter is written to a particular church, elders in the church, or a particular elder and their children being that, that local church body. So that's a little background on the text. And I'm really excited to get into this text and to preach on it because I'm giving two sermons on two topics I'm very passionate about, the topics of truth and love. When John writes in verse 3, Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Father's Son, In truth and love, what does that mean? What is truth? It's the question that Pilate asks in frustration as he's putting Jesus on trial. And what is love? Our society seems so obsessed with love, but who can give an answer to what it is? So my hope over these next two sermons is to answer these two questions, to shed some some light on the topics, teach us a few things, give us some more solid foundation for our beliefs and convictions and how to defend those beliefs and convictions. So tonight I'll tackle the topic of truth, and I'll leave love for next week. My plan for tonight is to take us through, on the one hand, a world's concept of truth. How did the world get to this concept of truth? What are the consequences of that worldview of truth? And then we'll uh, compare that and contrast that with what does the Bible say truth is, and what is a biblical idea of truth? So to to do that, I'm going to take us through a quick crash course of the history of truth just so we can kind of track how truth has changed and evolved over the centuries. And then we can figure out where we have arrived today, where society is at truth, and then where we stand in relation to that. And so to start out for our history of truth, I've got to start with Martin Luther, where all good histories start. And that's because Martin Luther revolutionized thought. Because before the Protestant Reformation, truth was held in the palm of the Pope's hand. He's the most significant authority figure, most powerful authority figure the world has ever seen. He held the power of the state, the power of the sword, he controlled the armies, he held the power of the church, and he held the power of salvation. Of course, we don't believe that, but in that worldview, for hundreds of years, if you were living in North Africa, Europe, or Asia Minor, to question the Pope was to put your salvation in jeopardy. Because if you're kicked out of the Catholic Church, then you're kicked out of salvation in in that worldview in the Catholic Church's mind. And so you just don't question the Pope. But then out of nowhere comes this guy Martin Luther who just starts kicking and screaming and saying, no, you can't do that. And that has, that doubt, when you doubt the most significant or most powerful authority figure the world has ever seen, it laid the roots for the Enlightenment. Because now if we can question the Pope, why don't we start questioning the Bible? And why don't we start questioning organized religion? And why don't we start questioning the truth? 
So that's where, we, that's where history will start. And I'm going to start with a, on a high point with a philosopher named Rene Descartes. And Rene Descartes, he realized that we're, we're, we're humans and we think. He's the I think, therefore I am guy. And he said, well, if I'm going to trust my reality, if I'm going to trust what I'm perceiving to be true, I must believe in a God. And not only must I believe in a God, but I must believe in a God that's powerful. Powerful enough to create the reality I'm perceiving and also powerful enough to sustain the reality I'm perceiving. But he can't just be powerful. He has to be a good and benevolent God. Because if God was powerful but he wasn't good, he could be tricking me and deceiving me and I have no basis for truth. I'd have no foundation to stand on when it comes to truth if God was not both good and powerful. That's a pretty good start. But then, about 150 years later, comes this guy named David Hume, 1770s. And he says, no, truth and knowledge is found in man's perceptions alone. He says, the only reason I know I'm going to drop, this Bible is going to fall if I drop it, is because I've dropped many things in the past, and I've seen many things fall down to the past. So I've developed a habit that tells me that when I drop things, they're going to fall. And he's also this proponent of the deism movement, which says, okay, there's probably a God. We got all this stuff. There's probably a God. But God is uninterested and uninvolved in our world. And so we can see this relation to now, truth is in the, is in the perceptions of human alone. It's in man's perceptions alone. And in relation to that, God is over here. He's way over there. We, he doesn't care about us, so we don't have to care about him. So his argument is that, well, if that's the case, we shouldn't teach God in school because God can't be put through the scientific method like dropping a Bible can or dropping anything. And we see the ramifications of this today. I was never taught the Bible in high school and I'm sure none of you or your children were. So that's where Hume stands on truth. It's through man, it's perceptions alone. And the next, not long after, this guy named Immanuel Kant, he's, he's sensing this growing tension between faith and religion and this scientific enlightenment movement. And so his solution, what he thought was a solution to the problem, was to tear the two worlds apart. And he says, okay, here's religion, here's faith over here, and here's science, and here are worldly things over here. They exist in two separate spheres. They don't have to answer to each other. And I think this is one of the most damaging things that has ever happened to the integrity of the Christian faith because now, in the mind of an atheistic scientist, to be religious, to be a man of the faith, is to be uneducated, unintelligent, uninformed, illogical, backwards, old-fashioned, what have you. And so to represent this, this concept of, or this worldview of, of faith and, and uh, religion, we have this philosopher named Soren Kierkegaard. And Soren Kierkegaard writes that to have faith is to lose one's mind so as to gain God. This is called fideism, and it's a terrible notion because he embraces that to have faith, to be a Christian, to be religious, is to be illogical. You have to take a leap path logic in order to gain God. And what is most damaging is I see Christians in my generation throughout time that believe this lie, that believe that to be religious is therefore to be innately unscientific. And so I see peers around me that 
they're sitting in class and their professors are railing against the truths of the gospel and blaspheming the good news of God and they don't say anything. They sit there quiet because they've convinced themselves that the only defense they have is, well, I just believe X and I just believe Y. So when a Christian student goes to school and they hear their professor rail against the truth of the gospel, they don't hear one accusation and renounce their faith. It's this death by duck bite of they're trying to hide underneath this pebble of of an excuse that it's just what I believe when the world and when science or facts or their professors or their peers around them, they think that they're just weighing on doubts of science when the only thing they believe they have to repel these doubts is, well, it's just what I believe. And so after a number of times that happens, after a number of years, the Christian throws up their hands and says, well, I just don't know what I believe anymore. Maybe I'm agnostic now. Because I thought I had a foundation for the truth, but I had nothing to defend these accusations, so I don't know what I believe anymore. And I think that's terrible, and it's because of the negligence of the church, because we haven't heeded the command to create a defense for our faith, as Paul says. We need to train ourselves so that when that atheistic professor accuses us of our gospel, when that coworker comes up to us and he says, do you really believe that Jonah could have survived in a whale for three days? Our only response is, well, actually, it was a big fish. <laughs> our response needs to be, sir, your accusations are not on the basis of science as you think they are. First and foremost, you're accusing the size of my God. You have to understand that my God is the creator and sustainer of the universe He created life and the parameters of life. He could rain down every star in heaven upon your head if you so desired. And you're accusing me that it's past that God's limitations to create, to to sustain the very man he's made and the very fish he's made and to sustain the life of the two of them. And when he's created the very parameters of that life, you think that's past my God, to keep Jonah alive in a fish for three days. No. And now let's tackle the accusations that my belief is is illogical, it's unscientific, well, let's look no farther than the creation of that universe. You believe in a Big Bang Theory, and well, I might as well, but you believe it was not orchestrated by a god or a greater power, and I do. Now, as a man of science, you know that, that the world and the universe abides by laws. And we know that one of those laws is the conservation of energy, which states that Energy cannot be created or destroyed. It can only be transferred. And thanks to the works of Einstein, we know that mass is an energy. Or in layman's terms, something can't come from nothing. And you're an existing thing in a universe full of stuff, and you're accusing me of being illogical when your very worldview, your very laws, prove the impossibility of your belief. And not only that, but we know that if there's rules that the, law, that the universe abides by, that we can predict the mass and the gravity and the spin of the earth and the spin of celestial bodies in the universe to a T because we know that matter follows a particular pattern a thousand times out of a thousand times. We know that, if the, that unthinking, unknowing atoms follow laws without having the perception to approve those laws, we know that if there's laws, there must be a lawmaker to write those laws. 
So, dear atheist, you are the one that is logical. You believe in the impossibility of something coming from nothing, and I believe in a God that for all things, for him all things are possible. So I implore you now to repent and believe your sins and worship the God of this great universe you, bear, you live in and breathe in. We need to be pre preparing ourselves for that defense, not this just settling for it's just what I believe. There's no truth in that. There's truth in the gospel and there's truth in scripture because we know it's from God. So that's the religious fear and that's, that's the trap we fall into in, in, inside of this split that Kant made that we, we still are lying to ourselves. Now, to represent this, this scientific realm, we have this philosopher named Friedrich Nietzsche. Friedrich Nietzsche is the guy who infinitely stated that God is dead. He's an atheist, and, or not atheist, he is an atheist. He's an, uh, sorry, nihilist, that's the word. He's a nihilist, which all nihilism does is it takes the logical argument of atheism to its conclusion. And so Nietzsche says, God is dead and therefore there is no truth. There is no truth, there is no standard for good and evil, there is no standard for what's right and what's wrong. And this is, this is nihilism. And this is what characterizes what's known as postmodern age, which is World War II to mere present day. And it's why an autographed urinal can be considered art and a picture of a tomato soup can can be considered art because there's no standard anymore to judge what is beautiful and what is not beautiful and what is good and what is bad. And I'd say we as a society have taken one step farther and it's known so brilliantly in academia as post-postmodernism or this more commonly referred to as relativism where truth is true so long as it's truth to you or in other words, believe what you want to believe and be who you want to be. Believe whatever you want to believe so long as it's what you want to believe, so long as it's true to you. And so truth now, it's I decide what is true. And it's not that there is no truth, it's now that there's an infinitude of truths. But this limit of infinitude of truth has, has, a, has a limit because once my truth says that your truth is wrong, well, my truth is barbaric, and my truth is outdated. And to give an example of this, if, if an unbeliever, if an atheist or an agnostic says, believe what you want to believe, be the real you, and you respond with, well, my God doesn't approve of your life choices or the real you you're choosing to be, my God demands that you submit to his laws and his rules, well, all of a sudden, my truth is wrong, because it doesn't leave space and it doesn't leave room for everybody else's truth to operate. So that's where the world is now. And that's how we got there. We went from Rene Descartes, truth is, we can only have a foundation for truth because of God. Hume, truth is through man's perception alone, and God is way over there. And then we have Nietzsche, there is no God, and therefore there's no such thing as truth. And now we, we've devolved into this garbage that is called relativism that, that says, well, there's an infinitude, an infinitude of truth. So believe whatever you want to believe, I guess. And to point out the silliness of relativism, which atheists or agnostic alike, you will fall, fall for this silliness. I'm going to use a, a, a term used in philosophy called the reductio ad absurdum. C.S. Lewis loves using this, and it's where you assume your opponent's argument and you derive it to its logical end. And in so doing, you, you show and you reveal its absurdity. You reduce it to absurdity. And so for a quick example, say, a little girl comes up to me and says, 
I love ice cream. I love ice cream so much that if I were the president of the world, we'd have ice cream every day for every meal. Every meal, every day. And I might say, <laughs> and I might say, well, that sounds nice. That sounds really nice, but if all we're eating was ice cream, then we wouldn't have room for pancakes or waffles. And if whenever I'm in the mood for pancakes and waffles, but I had to have ice cream, well, I wouldn't be happy. And so your idea that if we had ice cream for every meal, it would be a good idea, it's bad because well, I'd be unhappy because I want pancakes and waffles sometimes. And so it's where you, that's a silly example, but for a, just an example that you could use with an atheist or agnostic, I'm going to use vegetarianism, not because I hate vegetarians, but if your conscience bears on you when you eat meat, don't eat meat. But I just want to use it to show you as an example that if you don't believe in a God and you don't have a God as a standard of your truth, you have nothing to stand on. So that when a vegetarian says to me, I don't eat meat because I think it's wrong to eat other animals, I can respond with, well, atheist, agnostic, what is your definition of an animal? Because if the universe is nothing more than a whirlwind of atomic particles, then it, is not, then it is not an animal nothing more than a particular arrangement of those atoms in a particular space and time. Who are you to give value to one combination of atoms over another? If you say, well, it is because those animals are living, and that is what gives them value, I might respond with, well, aren't plants living as well? And who are you to put a hierarchy on living things? You're an animal, so therefore you prioritize animal life. Isn't that unfair of you? Isn't that self-centered or egotistic? Have you not considered the perspective of the plants? Well, how would they feel about you eating them? And if we are nothing but animals, why are we as humans expected to live above the laws of Darwin? If survival of the fittest is how the animal kingdom functions, who are we to have mercy on animals that are less fit than ourselves? Is it not our right or our duty as the fittest in the animal kingdom to impose our will on the lesser fit beings? If there is no God, then we are nothing but atoms bouncing around in a void, and therefore life is a made-up concept to label things that have a particular makeup of atoms. And therefore the life of animals is meaningless, and yours also is meaningless. Your atoms will melt away into something else in a matter of time, and yet you insist it is the ethical thing to do not to eat other animals. If you have ever mowed a lawn, I would charge you as a mass murderer of plant and animal life alike and have you locked up in prison. Now, I hope this goes to show that the foundation the world has laid for its concept of truth is garbage. And it's not sounding on a solid foundation that they think it is, but it's, instead it's standing underneath the wrath of God. Now, that we've seen where the world is in its truth, and how that truth is inconsistent with logic. Let's look at a biblical version of truth. And to show you a biblical version of truth, I'm going to take you way back, way farther back than uh, Martin Luther, and I'm going to go to the first philosophers in the West. And these guys are called the pre-Socratics, because they're older than Socrates. And these pre-Socratics are pretty unimpressive by modern standards. For example, this guy named Thales thought that everything was water. That was it. That was his philosophy. But it marks a turning point in thought because before all, everything in the world was explained to these Greek philosophers through mythology. 
that the universe is the way it is because there's this God named Zeus that had a lot of lady friends and he made a lot of God babies and the sun moves because it's pulled by a chariot and the world is sitting on the back of a big man named Atlas. And these philosophers are thinking, that's stupid. There's got to be a better explanation for all this. And so they started to think of a more naturalistic way to explain the universe around them. And they started using terms to give, give a concept to these concepts, or get, to give a term to these concepts. And so one philosopher used the term arche, which means beginning, but he used it as his first principle, this founding principle which all things are to come from. Another philosopher used the term cosmos, which we get, you know, the cosmos, and it's this original organization to the universe which everything abides by. Then come along, come along, comes along this guy named Heraclitus who revolutionizes Thales' idea that everything is water and instead everything is fire. But more importantly, he uses the term logos. He's the first to use the term logos philosophically. Logos is a Greek word that typically means word or reason. It's where we get our term logic from. And Heraclitus used it to refer to the rational divine intelligence and a principle of order of knowledge. What does this have to do with anything? Well, let's look to the Gospel of John quick. And it reads, John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Okay. Well, in Greek, I'm going to read the Greek. You'll see the term arche, which means beginning, logos, which as we see means word or reason, and theon or theos means God. So it reads, in arche, kain o lagas, kai holagas, in pras tan theon, kai theas hon, en hon lagas. Okay, Harry, we don't speak Greek. That sounds cool, but I, we don't speak Greek. What does it all mean? Well, it's the answer to our question we set out with. What is truth? God is truth. And if you're thinking, oh, that's cool, but you're stretching a little bit, in John chapter 14, verse 6, a little later, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the light. So as a Christian, our only concept of truth can be in God. If we read John chapter 1, verse 1 again, we can read, in the beginning was the Logos, and the Logos was with God, and the Logos was God. So we could insert, you know, word or reason, or we could insert Heraclitus' more philosophical take, or that it's the rational divine intelligence and principal order of knowledge. God is the rational divine intelligence and principal order of knowledge. Without God, we have no reason, we have no logic. Only when He is our foundation for truth and He is our foundation for reason will we ever have any, make any sense of us and our world around us. God is truth. And if we want to be intelligent in any sense of the word, we must understand that. Now let us come back to the text at hand. Second, Second John. I won't be long-winded, but I'll state this simply and clearly. And let us read John, ver, John, Second John, verse 1 through 4 again. The elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth. Because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Father's Son, in love or in truth and love. I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. 
How is it possible to love in truth? Well, first we have to have our foundation of truth in none other than Jesus Christ and His Word. Because, verse 2, because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. And if we have repented of our sins and believe in the truth of the Gospel for our salvation, that Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins, and His Holy Spirit has made us alive to Him, this personal truth of salvation will live with us forever and eternity. So in conclusion, I hope that it has become obvious that Christ alone is the only truth to stand on. The world's concept of truth is ever-changing and is ripe with confusion and contradiction. As Christians, we must heed the commands to make a defense for our faith so that we do not fall victim to con-splitting truth into two camps, one of faith and one of science. We know that our God is Lord over both science and religion. Christ is not only the standard of truth, but truth is only found in Him. And in our world of post-postmodernism, and relativism, Christ is countercultural as he commands us to submit to his truth as he is our ultimate authority. Verse 1 of tonight's, read, tonight's text reads, Whom I love in truth. So we've answered the first question, what is truth? And next week we'll put it all together by answering the question of what is love, so that we as a church can better heed John's commands to love each other in truth. Thank you all so much for coming out tonight. I hope this encourages you to not cower in the accusations of atheists or agnostics, but to stand boldly in the truth that we have in Christ alone. Now let us pray. Thank you, Lord, for this opportunity to speak tonight. And thank you for your truth. That as I'm a student in college and as we're, we're pilgrims in this world, that we have a, a foundation that none can topple. That we have strength and power in you and your truth alone. That truth is in God and God is truth alone. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.